Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting and before an excellent podcast. Quick shout out to our sponsor, Brex. Brex is a credit card for startups, the first one ever. It's fantastic. They don't require a personal guarantee by the founder. That is a huge, huge deal. Also has great integration with QuickBooks, which makes life easy for your accountant. And finally, they have really good rewards. They do startup-centric rewards, so like bonuses on ride-sharing and travel and eating out and things like that, all things that appeal to the whole team at a startup. So check out Brex, and if you go through their sign-up and type in Cruise, you get a discount. Hopefully you enjoy Brex, and thanks so much, guys, for sponsoring the podcast. Thanks. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very special guest today is Andrew Miller, Executive Vice President of Business Operations of the Toronto Blue Jays. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we have been friends for, I don't even know, 15 years, something extremely long. Yeah, at least. You still have all your hair. You look great. (laughs) I don't. But uh, we're both surviving young kids. And you have a really cool job. I've always been envious. And maybe it's worth retracing your career a little bit and tell people how you got to where you are with the Blue Jays. Sure. So I I grew up in Southern California and uh, just loved baseball. I played baseball uh, growing up. I was a bat boy for three years for a minor league team uh, in my hometown and uh, always wanted to play baseball and was really fortunate. Uh, Went to Cal and and walked onto the baseball team there, was a left-handed pitcher. Uh, I think pretty quickly realized the level of competition uh, both at Cal and, and our competitors and realized that, that playing baseball probably wasn't going to be uh, the future path for me. So uh, focused quite a bit on, on studying at that point, uh, was a business major at, at Haas and uh, you know really loved my classes, loved putting myself in the shoes of executives and trying to think about what I would do in, in their situation. And uh, you know was fortunate, got an internship with the Oakland A's uh, while I was in school. Uh, internship with uh, Sports Channel, which was the predecessor to uh, Comcast Sports Bay Area and, and, you know, the RSN for the A's and Giants and uh, found ways to to learn more about the sports industry. But uh, when I I graduated from from Berkeley, decided baseball has been my entire life and I've loved the game and I'm passionate about the game, but I've also enjoyed my classes and and maybe there's something else out there for me. So I ended up going to Wall Street, uh, did a year in New York at Solomon Brothers and fixed income, went back to the Bay Area and did a couple of years of investment banking in uh, tech banking for uh, CIBC Oppenheimer and then uh, moved over to Global Crossing and Venture Capital and really went through the dot-com boom and bust in the late 90s and early 2000s. Ended up at Global right before their bankruptcy and got let go about probably six weeks before they they filed for bankruptcy in early 02. So it was post 9-11, post dot-com crash. Uh, Every single person I knew in the Valley was out of work and it was hard. I mean, I I really had enjoyed what I had done, hadn't really been thinking about baseball and, you know, for a number of years had uh, worked in different, you know, finance roles and uh, loved it and uh, was trying to find something else new to do. And a couple of buddies of mine were out of work bankers and uh, they were starting up a small investment group and tried to convince me to join them. And uh, I, I tried to explain to them, I, I have, you know, uh, an apartment in Silicon Valley. Uh, I have bills to pay. I, I need to get paid. <laughs> I need to work. Uh, and <laughs> You're pretty uh, young too. So it's not like you had a lot of savings. No, you know? I had nothing. Uh, and yeah, that's what I just say to them. I, I have no one paying my bills. If, uh, if I don't get paid, I don't eat. I don't pay rent. And, uh, 
you know, they, they made me sort of an offer you can't refuse. They, they said, you know, you have a negative opportunity cost right now, uh, which I had to go back in my uh, econ 101 and try and figure <laughs> out what that could possibly mean. But, uh, you know, they said, listen, you know, you're sitting on your couch all day uh, doing nothing and we're offering you a job, a desk, deal flow, a business card. You can keep looking for jobs. And, and I enjoyed being with them. So I said, you know what, that, that's fair. You know, if they make money, uh, I'll make some money. And uh, you know, so we ran around Silicon Valley for a couple of years, uh, did some small advisory deals, made a couple of small investments. And ultimately what I realized was I, I was young and uh, that my partners were kind of more where we are today, you know, in their 40s, you know, they'd been managing directors at banks and they had kids and mortgages and they were much more in the mode of waiting out the storm. And uh, I had decided I, I don't really see myself as a banker long term and that my career path is moving towards becoming a banker again uh, when, when the storm clears out. So uh, that led me to, to grad school where we obviously spent a lot of time together at, at Northwestern. But for me, it really wasn't about sports. It was about the intersection of law and business. And, you know, the, the JD MBA program there was a good way for me to, you know, take what I learned in the business world and get a legal education and, you know, hopefully come out the other side with the ability to, you know, really understand the implications from a legal perspective, from a business perspective. And, uh, you know, a, as you know, most of the things that we're dealing with in the business world, uh, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99 of 100 times, the answer is not go call a lawyer, right? And, you know, when you're dealing with startup executives, you know, they're dealing with every challenge, you know, that anyone has in the business world. You know, you have employee issues, you have customers not paying you, you have suppliers not supplying you with what you expected, uh, you have intellectual property questions, anything that comes about. And most of the time, it's really a business question and you're trying to figure out what are the legal implications of my decision making. And I didn't feel equipped to have those conversations or provide that advice. Uh, so, you know, Northwestern was a great opportunity for me to, you know, round out my education. And, you know, it was really my first year of law school that I started thinking much more about what is it that I want to do? And I realized I had three years where I didn't need a job and that felt like a lifetime at that point. And, uh, you know, what do I really want to do? Baseball kept coming back up and, you know, Moneyball, the book had come out a year or two before and I read it. I realized not only was that happening right down the hallway from me in Oakland and I wasn't aware, but more importantly, the types of decision making, the types of frameworks, the types of use of information that I had seen, whether it was on Wall Street or Silicon Valley or grad school, that that was starting to become more incorporated in, in the baseball world. And so my thought process was I don't need a job. And, you know, if I can use the next year or two or three learning more about baseball and it works out, great. And if not, hey, I'll probably go back out to California and find a job that I enjoy. And I've learned something more about baseball. And uh, I, I was really fortunate. I, I spent about 12 months doing that. And the negative opportunity cost thing kind of showed up again for yeah, you, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. There's, there's no reason not to try and pursue it. And uh, you, you did know. something that I always admired. I think this is where you're going, but you, because sports are kind of notoriously hard to get into the business side of sports. And I worked for an agent through like happenstance when I was in college and you have some agent connections, but you did something that I just absolutely loved at the time. I recognized what, what you were doing was amazing. Maybe tell the audience like your, I, the, how you got your first toehold into professional sports. Yeah. I mean, it was, a lot of it was just networking and that's something that. 
uh, especially the time was very uncomfortable for me and not really part of like very natural for me. And uh, I just was, was struggled to reach out to people and ask them questions or introduce myself. And uh, what I realized very quickly, whether it's sports or any other industry, is that people are very happy to talk about themselves and their careers and provide advice. And uh, so I had the good fortune of probably talking to, uh, I don't know, two or three dozen people at different teams, different sports, uh, baseball, probably basketball, football, uh, throughout you know a, a year, year and a half or so, uh, and you know got a lot of insights that really got to understand the industry a lot better. Uh, got some advice to to do my own research and to start finding areas of the business I was passionate about and learn more about it. And I started doing that on salary arbitration. I, I read more, and there's a lot of academic research paper you know papers out there on salary arbitration in baseball. It's one of the few areas of arbitration that actually has. Uh, published data because yeah. the, the player data is publicly available and the, the results of each case are, are made public. And so, you know, it's easy for uh, people looking to do research on any number of different fields of negotiation or arbitration to use baseball salary arbitration. So I started doing research on my own and at some point got really lucky. Someone said to me, you know, I don't know him. Uh, I talked to him once and uh, I can't really provide you an introduction, but I think Chris Antonetti of the Indians would really value a conversation with someone, you know, like you with your background. And, um, you know, Chris at the time was assistant general manager of the Indians and is currently uh, president of baseball operations. And uh, that night I emailed Chris, total blind, you know, cold email. And uh, he responded. And a week later we talked. And a month later the Indians hired me as an intern. So, Wow. I thought she went to like the winter meetings too, or something like that. And like networked with like the, it was like something that the Kansas city Royals people were talking to you. And then they, was that who put you in touch with the Indians or I remember something about this. No, it was, it was a total cold call to Chris. They hired me in baseball operations, which is what I wanted to do. So my, my goal was to become a general manager and uh, you know, baseball split uh, in baseball operations, which is everything tied to the players on the field, scouting, uh, coaching, developing players, all the science and analytics that go into, you know, players, that's all on the baseball operations side. And yeah. then there's business operations, which is what I do now, which is all yeah. the things that are more traditional to, to businesses, sales, marketing, finance, HR, IT, you know, facilities. And uh, my goal was to be the general manager, which is the person that oversees the baseball operations side of things. And uh, I was really you kind of sold yourself short on the, uh, your career at Cal too. Like you were a, a crafty left-handed pitcher, uh, you know, so you actually had some bona fide experience. You weren't like a major league player, but you knew the game. You played it for a very long time. So that, that makes sense. Like a former player going into the general manager track, right? That's what you were thinking. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't that good a player, but you know, it, it, I mean, Cal is uh you know, a high level of, of baseball. And, you know, at the time uh, we were still just the, the Southern six pack. So, you know, our division was Cal, Stanford, UCLA, USC, Arizona, Arizona State. Uh, I mean, that's a really tough baseball to, you know, division. And, uh, you know, there were guys that I played with that, uh, you know, became big leaguers. You know, a lot of guys we played against, you know, went to the big league. So it helped me understand, you know, a very high level of, of college baseball. Uh, and what you know, types of skills, what types of players translate into professional baseball. Yeah. Um, but you know, my 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 job in in Cleveland was you know much more tied to contract negotiations, 
you know, salary arbitration, a- anything tied to the major league team and, and the roster. Uh, and I loved it. I mean, I, I got to do that for four or five years and, um, you know, really enjoyed it. Was a part of a number of trades in uh, 2006, 7, 8, 9 that, you know, really kind of set you know, the, the path forward for the Indians for a number of years, you know, a number of those guys are still there. And, uh, I remember being on the phone with you, the Indians at the time were a very analytics driven comp or uh, team and the giants were not the team I root for. And so routinely you guys would be trading with the giants and I would be like, Oh my God, the giants has traded for like another terrible marginal major league player from the Indians. So one night randomly as a joke, I called you and you were like three hours ahead of me. I think I was driving home from my grandma and I was like, stop trading with the Giants. Like, please, <laughs> you know, this is, by the way, this is before the Giants won like three World Series in five years. So I was totally bitter fan. And obviously that general man, that team knew what they were doing. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't series. remember what trade you're talking about, but, you know, the, the it was Giants it, won, the Ryan uh, Darko trade or something like that. It was just <laughs> yeah, like the, a the, tor- the, terrible. And you and I were talking and joking around and then you're like, all of a sudden, you're like, I got to go. I got to go right now. I'll see you later. And I was like, oh, shit. But it was like, I think it was like 11 or midnight your time. And the next day, I think you traded Cliff Lee or Carlos Santana to like major, major players. And I realized you had actually been working on that trade late at night and took a phone call from your friend. But that's what you were working <laughs> on. That's why you had to go really quickly. Uh, I, I don't remember that, but uh, the, the Giants definitely did well for themselves. So uh, it wasn't anything that, that we did to, to steal players from them. Uh, you know, winning no, three no. Well, I think it's one of those things where I think you guys, the teams looked at the world differently. So it made sense to be natural trading partners. Like if the team you're looking at, if you're working on a trade, right? sees the world the same way as you, it's probably hard to put a, a good trade together. Yeah, it's actually, that's Mutually actually beneficial. one of the questions I asked pretty early on because especially at the time there were teams that had very different you know, perspectives on valuing players and um, decision-making and a lot of other things. And uh, one of the questions I had pretty early was, is it easier to do trades with teams that have a similar perspective you know, at the time, it may have been you know the the Red Sox or the you know the Diamondbacks or some of those other teams, the Tampa Rays, uh, or some of the other teams that didn't have the same type of decision making. And um, you know, the the truth is that it, it it sort of depends, right? There's some value in not seeing players the same way because that might allow you to line up, uh, and there's some value to uh, analyzing players in a similar manner because that allows you to maybe speak a very similar language or you know say hey here's the sort of value I put on the player and here's why and sort of you know yeah. be able to communicate throughout the negotiation but uh, you know I, I think baseball is fun because there's 29 other teams and they all do it slightly differently and there's different ways to be successful yeah that makes total sense and assigning you guys can you if you value a comp, uh, a player the same way in much the same way like a Wall Street person would value a company you have a starting point for the value. There's something you glossed over there which I think is important to point out, which is you started as an intern with the Indians. I think it wasn't it unpaid like an unpaid internship. You know, this is sort of negotiations one on one. I was actually in a negotiations class uh, at Kellogg when I got <laughs> the offer to be an intern uh, for the Indians. And I, I was just in shock, you know, that the Indians were offering me an internship and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what questions to ask. And I remember going over to my professor uh, after the class and saying, listen, I, I know this is going to sound stupid, but I just got offered my dream job and I have no idea like how to ask them questions like, 
am I getting paid or not? I said, I don't know if I care, right? But I don't want to lose the internship because I'm asking. And he said, you know what? Just come up with three or four questions, you know, and they're going to be basic terms. When do you want to start? And, you know, like, what do you tell, like, what do you know about living in Cleveland? And, you know, is this paid? And, you know, just slip it in there. And he's like, most of the time, he's like, it is, you know, they have it and they set it and it is what it is. But it was, it was paid. It was very low paid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it has worked out well. It worked out well. And you also had, I, I remember you had a compadre who was an intern as well. And uh, I actually drove through Cleveland on my way, I think, to my home maybe for my summer yeah, internship and stayed at your apartment and got to yeah. see. And like you guys saw the opportunity and worked really hard. It was, I remember being super impressed, but you guys are both tired, but you worked hard and made the most out of your internship to, to get the full-time offer. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I think the thing that struck me most about Cleveland was having been at a number of organizations prior to the Indians. Uh, and, and I loved the people I worked with and I, I loved the work I was doing. I had never seen an organization like them and like the leadership of Mark Shapiro, who I still work with here in Toronto, and Chris and Mike Chernoff, the general manager of the Indians. And their approach to building organizations and leadership and empowerment and hiring and development was that it was the sort of thing we would read about in business school. And I'd never actually experienced it in real life. And, you know, truthfully, I actually thought it was some sort of a, a selling approach when I first started. You know, I just thought it could, it's too good to be true that, you know, the people I'm working with are incredible people. They're down to earth. They're humble. Uh, they're really competitive, but they care. They care a lot about learning. They care a lot about building and they care a lot about trying to figure out, you know, how to improve as an organization and as individuals. And I just thought that that's probably not sort of who they are. That's probably going to, you know, over time, I'm going to see who they really are. And over time, it was actually proven time and time again that, no, that, that's exactly who they are. What you see is what you get. And it, it changed me. It changed me as uh, a leader. It, it changed me as a person. It changed how I interact, you know, with, with my employees now. Because the yeah. idea was, you know, what, what is it that you want? And, and how can I help you get to where you're going? And the very first time I met Mark... Uh, was, you know, before my internship started, they, they invited me down to Winter Haven, Florida uh, to their spring training facility to meet everybody. And uh, he sat me down. He said, first of all, I sit down with every intern. He said, because every intern we hire is the most important person that we add to this organization. And if you look at Mark's track record, it, it is absolutely unbelievable. And he's right. I mean, the people that I worked with are now running seven or eight different major league teams. Uh, and it, it's just a ability to say we're going to bring people in that are incredible what they do have diverse backgrounds can complement our team and then empower them to to work on the most critical things and what mark asked me was what, what do you want to do and i said i want to be a general manager and he said well two things first if you didn't want to be a general manager you shouldn't be sitting here and second yeah, like, you can't be afraid to vocalize your dreams, right? I think yeah. that makes tons of sense. And, and he said, second, my job is to help you develop the skills and experiences necessary for you to achieve that goal. And it may not happen here because there's only one GM. It was him at the time. Uh, and <laughs> he said it. And You're it, like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to Julius Caesar you. Don't <laughs> yeah. worry. Yeah. You know, and it, 10 and it, years may not, from now. it may not happen elsewhere because there's only 29 other of those roles in the entire world. 
But as you continue to grow and mature and develop and your goals evolve, my job is to understand that and to continue to help you along the way. And, you know, I've been really fortunate. I mean, I've been with Mark for uh, awesome. 12, 13 That's a really years good now. Story. And, well, you know, and, he, and the Indians it. basically, like you said, like seven or eight general managers now in the major leagues, right, are, are from the Indians, yeah. from that tree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guys I worked with uh, actually – you know, came in and replaced Mike Hazen, who's the general manager of the Diamondbacks. Uh, Neil Huntington left pretty early on uh, in, in my time in Cleveland to become the Pirates general manager, and he's been GM there for 12 or so years. Uh, David Stearns uh, and Derek Falvey both worked with me. They're running the Brewers and the Twins. Uh, Mike Chernoff is obviously promoted to GM in, in Cleveland, and, and Ross Atkins is our GM here. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it really is. Like, you know, being in the Bay Area – you know, the Bill Walsh coaching tree and all the, yeah, you know, yeah. 49er legends that went on to coaching. I mean, that's what Mark has done in, in baseball with executives. And, you know, that's I've been incredible. really fortunate to, to be a part of it. But ultimately for me, you know, I was on that path and, you know, four or five years in was loving it. It had no, you know, decision to, to switch. And Mark started to, to transition to become team president. And, you know, he was going to oversee the business side and the baseball side, which is, you know, relatively unique for a team president. And his background was 20 years of work at the Indians in baseball operations. So, you know, he was looking for someone to help him learn the business and ultimately run the business. And uh, he started very slowly and softly floating things to me. And hey, when you get a few minutes, I know you're busy, but take a look at this marketing plan and this business plan and you know, just give me some thoughts of how you would think about, you know, what questions would you have? And then it ultimately was, you know, him asking me to switch over and become his assistant on the business side. And it was a really tough decision for me. And uh, well, I, you, you should be the host of this podcast because you steered the conversation exactly where I was going to go for it, were how to make yourself incredibly valuable to the people you work with. And you did that. Like you had this business background, you had the legal background. And I remember at the time when you were making this transition, it made tons of sense to me because it was like, you were, you were one of the few people in the organization that understood the baseball side of it, but who also had a business background. And, and he realized that could be incredibly valuable to him. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was a hard decision for me because I was on the path that sort of brought me into baseball and what I really wanted to, you know, I, I saw my goal and obviously, you know, I talked about all the, the great people that I worked with that have gone on to do that. And, you know, there's nothing guaranteed in life, you know, th those are hard jobs to get, you know, yeah, but I was in yeah. the right, the right path and the right position to, to have that opportunity. And, uh, you know, ultimately I just decided that, you know, I am passionate about baseball and I, I love the sport and, almost nobody gets to work on the baseball side and the business side. And so it gave me a really unique perspective on the game. And then more, much more importantly, my number one goal is to win the World Series. And, you know, the, the team I, you know, I was with, you know, they were really talented, not that they weren't looking to improve and not that I wasn't contributing to it. But, you know, baseball economically is very tied to local revenue. There's no salary cap. And 75% you know, or so of the revenue that teams generate is local. Right, which is polar opposite to a sport like the NFL, where you know about three quarters or so of the revenue is centrally driven from the league. And so from a baseball perspective, that means the market you're in, which is a defined territory, any other business that you're working with, you know, has some ability to migrate and say, if these are the customers, is this the market I want to be in? If not, I need to either shift my product mix, you know, develop something new or move to a different territory and try and develop new customers. 
we can't do that. You know, our customers are fixed by definition. And for Cleveland, it's a very small market. It's, you know, really from Cleveland to Toledo to Columbus to Youngstown and back to Cleveland, it's about an hour and a half or two hours in any direction. Uh, for Toronto, it, it is literally one word. Our market is Canada. Uh, yeah, and which so is incredible. It's just incredible. a massive, massive difference. So, you know, for, for me, it was maybe the ability for us to transform our business and, you know, focus on organizational strategy. What are the resources we need? What's the best way to deploy them? How do we build our brand? How do we engage fans? This was in 2010 or so. How do we build a social media practice, which we didn't have? You know, how do we engage fans through, you know, different channels, you know, of media? How do we think about reinventing our ballpark? Uh, and ultimately, all of that leads to, you know, how do we generate more revenue so that we can use it more effectively for baseball yeah. decisions? I remember talking to you three, three or four years, maybe five years ago, about like how the the sales and ticketing side had not really been run in a revenue optimization way. There was a lot of discounting and things like that. And you were trying to kind of rein some of that in and and re also reach out to like the big corporate entities in Cleveland because there was only, you, you kind of said there, it's a small market. There's only so much money to go around. And so you were, you were thinking like everything soup to nuts on the operation side of how you can increase revenue. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about baseball is that, you know, I mentioned Moneyball and, you know, that was really the outcome of, you know, a pretty natural, you know, process in that, you know, because of the way that the economics are that I, that I just mentioned, you know, that, you know, you need to figure out ways to create competitive advantages to, to utilize your resources most effectively. And in the early 90s, big baseball contracts were a few million dollars. And if you're a billionaire owner, you know, that like no one wants to lose a few million dollars, right? But if you're a billionaire owner, you, you can <laughs> yeah. sustain that loss. You know, 10 years later, Alex Rodriguez signs a $200 million contract. That, that is franchise changing money. And so that was a very natural progression to, okay, if we're talking about a $200 million decision, right? Think about the businesses you've worked in or worked with, right? A $5 million decision is handled differently. Uh, now with, with rigor, right? But very yeah. differently than a $200 million decision. And, you know, now you're looking at player contracts, Mike Trout or Bryce Harper that, you know, are, you know, quarter to half billion dollars. And, you know, that that's a different approach to, to decision making if you're talking about that magnitude. So that really led to a lot of the more informed decision making techniques, uh, you know, using data, using different decision frameworks uh, within the baseball operation side. The interesting thing was that really wasn't done on the business side until about 10 years later or so. Uh, it took yeah. another decade before, you know, the real sophisticated business techniques uh, that are being used now in many, many different industries were used in baseball. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about that was most of those techniques just come from other businesses. And, you know, if if I said, you know, someone, hey, we should think about maybe trying X, Y or Z or have you thought about this? Sometimes every once in a while I'd get a, you know, you, you're, you're thinking about that Moneyball stuff and. I'd say, no, 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 like Moneyball was applying business and statistical principles to baseball decision making. I'm just talking about applying it to business. <laughs> and, you know, like, we, like we, we've hired people from Google and Procter and & Gamble and Kraft and 
Kellogg and Wharton and, you know, all, all the best business schools and companies and, you know, they're using those techniques. And the truth is that baseball is a consumer business and it's yeah. not that dissimilar from other consumer businesses. And, you know, it's about trying to understand who are your customers and what is it that's driving their decision to purchase your product. And for us, that product happens to be an experience at, at the Rogers Center and, you know, watching a baseball game or, uh, you know, experiencing different things that are, you know, sort of tangential to the game. But, you know, that's the decision. And it's not that different from going to a supermarket and buying a product or, you know, having some other consumer decision. It's just a, a different way to frame the, the fan base. Well, you, I mean, you're competing against Netflix and movies and Spotify and any form of entertainment out there, you know? And so you have to, you have to be on your game. I mean, a lot of times we're competing against our, ourselves in some way because, you know, technology has made it so easy for us to access baseball uh, that, you know, I, I carry around an iPhone and watch games, you know, on my phone most of the time if I'm not here, if, you know, it's not a home game. And that wasn't possible 20 years ago. And, you know, for a fan, the decision to come to our game in downtown Toronto and, you know, deal with all the things that go with coming downtown and, you know, spending the money and the time to come to our game, right? That experience has to be different than watching the game on their phone or in their yep. living room. Yep. And so for us, it's trying to create, you know, something that's unique that's going to make a fan, you know, want to spend their time and money with us. I couldn't say any better. So, and we've been, this is, we usually record for about half an hour. So we're kind of there, but there's a couple other questions I want to ask sure. you. So we, before we turn the mics on, I was kind of framing the podcast for you. Of like, it's really a startup podcast. This is for people who are in the startup world or serving startups. And I was like, kind of weird generating ideas. I was like, what can a startup learn from like your experience in baseball or at the Blue Jays? And you had two really awesome points. Do you remember what they were? Do you want to go over them? I don't remember. <laughs> it's been a long half hour. You're just you're just that smart. The first one was building a strong culture and uh, or an organizational culture, which I thought was very kind of very very smart because that's baseball's kind of a maybe the old way of thinking about it is like a star business. You know, you get the Alex Rodriguez or whoever Barry Bonds type of player, and and good things happen around those superstars. But I think one of the things that like the Indians did when you first started off and it's more pervasive inside of baseball now is like, people talk about the organizational culture a lot down from the ownership all the way down through the executives to the team. And maybe you have some thoughts on that, because I think that's very applicable for startups. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, you know, I, I come out of the startup world and, you know, come out of Silicon Valley and, you know, the 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of what I saw there was the energy and the feeling like we're changing the world. And that was what, was what was exciting about it. And, you know, working on, you know, dot-com IPOs in the late 90s, you know, being 23, 24, 25 years old and feeling like th this work matters and it matters because we're changing, you know, something. And it was, uh, it was really energizing and, you know, the world changed. You know, it may not have needed, you know, a, a thousand of the, the dot-com companies that, you know, were out there competing, but, you know, the, the technologies that, that we saw and the way that consumers interact really did change. And, you know, that piece of it, you know, translates to a baseball organization where we have a goal. Our goal is to win the World Series. 
And we need to have every single person working on the most important thing to help us achieve that goal. And that per it doesn't matter if that person is you know, cleaning the floors or doing accounting or coaching players or playing, right? We need every single person to be you know, doing what's the most important for them uh, to help us achieve that goal. And so that common goal and the, the core values that you know, surround it, I mean, we're very small organizations. Uh, we have roughly 200 or so employees on the business side full time and roughly 200 or so, you know, employees on the baseball operations side, you know, not counting players. And uh, that, that's not that big, you know, and we we need to make sure that we're utilizing our resources as effectively as possible. But it also means that every single person needs to be aligned from a culture perspective. You know, our values when we hire people, it, it is critical, you know, that someone yeah. is coming in with you know, an aligned set of values and, you know, they'll have different perspectives and, and add to the, the conversation and add a different point of view. Um, but we need people to all be, you know, focused on, you know, a, a common goal. I love it. And that's, it is like, and that is something we're still learning and still getting better at, like having everyone pulling the same way and going for the same thing. And I, I'm reflecting back on your first meeting with Chris, uh, your, your former boss, like Chris, Ant it was the, Chris Antonetti, right? Or was it the, it was Mark that, that said those Mark, things. I'm yeah. sorry, Mark Antonetti, sorry. Um, where he was asking you as the intern, where you wanted to go and what you, what you wanted to get out of it. It, it, you know, having that buy-in from the bottom up is incredibly important. It's, it's good to see that. I know you had at the Indians and it's good to see you've been replicating that with the Blue Jays. Yeah, I mean, our, our goal is, is similar, right? We want people to be passionate about what they do. And, uh, you know, the, the, the difference, I think, between what I was doing before and, you know, what I've been doing in baseball is that, you know, like there's some, some milestones you, you pass or some goals you achieve as a company. It's always very exciting. There's nothing in this world that's more exciting than pouring champagne on each other and you know celebrating what what is a a group victory and you know making the postseason or advancing the postseason there just aren't that many places in this world where your performance is judged night in and night out good or bad and yeah you know the ability that you know you have to come together when it all works out is is really a special feeling that's awesome i love it that's a i think that's a really good place to leave it actually um where can people get a hold of you or follow you. Obviously they can follow the blue Jays on ESPN or ESPN.com or whatever, but if they listen to this podcast and want to reach out or where, how can they get a hold of you on Twitter, LinkedIn? Yeah. I mean, I, I may be the, the, the least technologically <laughs> focused person <laughs> you're dealing with. I, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I, you know, it's funny when I got here. So, you know, we, we've built a social media practice in Cleveland and, and now rebuilt one here. And, uh, when I got here, there was a lot of question of like, hey, are you going to be on, on Twitter answering fan questions? And my response was, no, we have two million followers on Blue Jays, you know, Twitter yeah. you know, feed. Like we, we should be, you know, utilizing that to, you know, generate all the interest and to answer fan questions when necessary. That's a huge platform you know, that we need to try and grow. So, you know, I've sort of taken a backseat to, to let the, the team and the brand uh, kind of carry it. But but I'm on LinkedIn if people want to find me and uh, yeah. And reach out. I, I was so excited for you when we went to the Blue Jays because a Toronto is like a world class city, a cool place to live, and I'm MVS and we promised to visit you. Uh, and like you said, you have the whole entire country of Canada rooting for the Blue Jays. And we I, we were before we turned the mics on, we were talking about 
how you you called up Vladimir Guerrero's son, who was Vladimir Guerrero is a great player for the Montreal Expos. The Expos moved to Washington D.C. and a new name now. But like you're kind of continuing that national tradition, and I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, I mean our our, our brand really is is nationwide here, and it's something that is very very different. It's one of the areas that was outside my comfort zone coming here, but. You know, learning uh, not only a new city, a new country, a new fan base, new ballpark, new organization, but you know, how does the country interact, and and how do you think about cultivating that brand nationally? And you know, what I can tell you is it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Where you know, we really are Canada's team, and there are Canadians coast to coast to watch our games. And last year, I went out to Seattle to see it firsthand. But like when we play, you know, in Seattle and some other you know cities around the league. It's really a Blue Jays, you know, atmosphere home game. I mean, there's probably half to two thirds of, you know, Safeco Field at the time last year that were Blue Jays fans, and you know, coming down That's from awesome. Vancouver and Western Canada, and you know, the 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 Maple Leaf and the Blue Jays logo really means something to people, you know, that is is a pride in in Canada and, and their home country. I love it. I love it. Well, congrats on all your success. I know how hard you worked to get there, and. Uh, We'll, we'll be following along with the Blue Jays this year, and you've got some really cool talent coming up. So hopefully we'll see you in the World Series in a couple years. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Awesome. All right, buddy. Take care. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Founders and Friends Podcast. Quick shout out to Brex, the first startup credit card. Brex is our sponsor, and we really appreciate their support. Brex has no personal guarantee for founders. That's a really big deal. It integrates really nicely with QuickBooks. Great rewards that are startup-centric. It's a really nice little tool, and we are seeing it uh, all across the Cruise uh, portfolio of clients. So check it out. And again, if you go through the sign-up flow and type in Cruise, you get a discount. So hopefully you'll check out Brex. Thanks again for the support on the podcast, guys. Take care.